glad you're here this morning. We've got a chance to start dealing with 1 John over the next couple of weeks. And so I'm excited to get to talk to you about 1 John. A number of you memorized it as part of our class last year. And I've assured you, Max included, uh, speaking of memorizing it, that you could get me your questions. And every time you all would come last year and say, well, I've got a question about this thing we memorized. I say, oh, I'll get to that when I get to 1 John. So write them up, email them to me. We're going to spend about three weeks on 1 John, and we'll be looking at it as an overview this morning in the first chapter, but looking at some of the beginning. Now, about uh, two summers ago, I think, I taught an adjunct class at a law school um, out, uh, have you all heard of Harvard? Okay, it's Texas Tech, and I (laughs) taught... Uh, a class at Texas Tech. I, I've been, I have taught at Harvard and bless their hearts. They wear these t-shirts at Harvard, the Texas Tech of the Northeast. And, um, I taught a class and the class was over what's called Vore Dyer. Now in any place other than Texas, they tend to call it Voidir. But here in Texas, that's just Vore Dyer. And what Vore Dyer means is French. And it's French for speak the truth. And Vordire, or Voidir, is that time in a trial where you pick the jury. And what you do, actually, is you pick who's not on the jury. You actually eliminate people, and the first 12 or so that are left are the ones that make the jury panel. But in the process of teaching the class, one of the concerns that I had was over making sure the students knew how to actually do it, not just tell them the mechanics, but let them see one. And so I had a a time set aside where I said, here's the fact pattern, and I hand it out to you, and I'm going to have a demonstration here of how to do a voir dire. But I needed a mock jury. I needed people I could ask questions of. So for my mock jury, I just decided to use the 62 or however many kids there were, kids, young adults, uh, however many students there were in the class. And I said, you'll be my panel and I will select a jury from you. Now, I got to tell you, it's really hard for me to do as a lawyer, even though I've done this for over three decades. This is what I do for a living. I could pick a jury out of y'all, piece of cake. But I was shocked at the difficulty I had, and I didn't consciously know why I was having that difficulty until I started looking at it. Here was my problem. Okay, Bob's saying, you didn't have me there, because Bob's the one who helps me pick a jury. Bob, you would have had problems with this too, okay? Here was the problem. Judge John Clinton sitting right here with his wife, Luce, on the front row. Now, y'all two stand up. You're just a wonderful example. Come up here. Come up. Come up here. This is a wonderful illustration of my problem. So, yeah, come on up. Come on up. See, if I was picking a jury and these two were out there, I'd have no trouble with John. He's been around long enough. I can ask him about his life's experiences. I can figure out what he's been doing in life and and what's gotten him where he is and how he views the world. And I'm going to have a real good clue of what he's going to do in a case. Because I can see the road he's been on. And if I can see the road he's been on for a long time, I got an idea which direction he's walking and where he's headed. 
Luce, on the other hand, is so much younger than her husband. She's a child. She's more like those students. And the frustrating part for me was, how can I pick a jury out of these young kids who haven't walked a long enough road for me to figure out where they're going? They're wild cards. They're unpredictable. Because you need to understand where someone's been if you want to understand where they're headed. Make sense? Thank you, guys. (laughs) Yeah, it's called robbing the cradle. So, I mean, the, the, the point of this is, whatever road we're on, the road we travel, it leads somewhere. We don't simply walk a road and go nowhere. Oh, I'm, don't get me wrong, you can nail one of your feet to the ground and you can go around in circles. But barring that, if you're walking down the road of life, you're headed somewhere. The book that we're studying this morning and for the next couple of weeks, 1 John, is a book written by an older man. I believe the Apostle John. I'll tell you why later. But it's written by an older man who is seeing a number of people in the church on a road. And he's seen where they've been, but he understands where that road leads. And he's very concerned about it because the road leads to a bad place. And it was causing questions in the minds of these early Christians that are actually questions we still have today. You will find many of the questions from the time of 1 John are still here. And because those questions are still here, they just carry, maybe they're they're wearing different clothes. But the questions are still here. Let me give you a couple of them. I'm sorry my computer's being frustrated. Let me give you a couple of them. First, was Jesus really the Son of God come in the flesh? There are people who want to know. There are people who are challenged by that. There are people who say, okay, I'll accept there was a historical Jesus. But the idea that he's God, the son of God, come in the flesh? Eh, I'm not going there. Another question. Was the death of Jesus really necessary to forgive sins? Or was it just a tragedy that happened? An injustice? Just... Man, you know, sometimes innocent people get punished. And uh, unfortunately, that happened and Jesus was put to death. But it, it, it really just is an unfortunate circumstance. There was nothing necessary about it. Another question that that early church was having that is still today. Are we naive fools for believing this stuff? Are we just happy-go-lucky? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, what's it cost us to believe? It doesn't really cost anything. You know, we don't charge you for coming to church. You get donuts. You get coffee. You sit around nice people. Not a lot to do on Sunday morning anyway if you don't play golf or watch those TV shows that talk about politics. So, yeah, might as well. 
We don't live in a persecution age. We're not worried about getting killed for being here. And so it's an easy thing to do. But are we just naive fools for believing this? Are we just walking in a comfort zone? Those were questions that, that had a different form, but they're the same type questions that we might have today that brought forth this letter. First John. Now, I want to talk about the letter itself, and I want to start by talking about who wrote it. Authorship issues. Um, when you look at the letter itself, if you look at the very beginning, let's throw it up here on the screen for everybody. It starts out and says, that which was from the beginning. Now, that doesn't sound like a letter, does it? I mean, we know letters. We've studied Paul. We know how Paul starts out. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God. Or, again, for Second Thessalonians, same thing. You know, Paul to Timothy, my true child in the faith. We go back and look at uh, Corinthians. Paul, called by the will of God to the church that is in Corinth. We don't have anybody identified here. It says, that which was from the beginning. Now, if we look at the title, we see the first letter of John. But this is an add-on. That's not in the original. That's not in the Greek. That's, that's what his church history has added to it. First John, or as, as some people would say, one John. Um, actually, they, they do say that in England, okay? Um, uh, or in certain aspects of political culture. Um, one John. First John, if we look at it, you know, how do we know John wrote this? And if so, which John? You know, we've got the Gospel of John. We've got Second John, Third John. And we've got the Revelation of John. And what are we going to do about authorship here? Well, I'm convinced that the letter was written by John the Apostle. And I've got reasons why that are in your handout. I'm not going to go into a great deal of, of depth with them, but we'll see them as we go through the passage itself. I will tell you church history taught that John wrote it. And so I've put some quotations from church history in your handouts as well that reference John. And these are early quotes in church history. Um, We've got early citations, early quotes. The timing of the letter is another element that comes into play. So Apostle John writes it late in the Apostle John's life, probably writes it after the Gospel of John. But what's happened since Jesus has died that's notable? Well, if Jesus dies around 33 A.D., Paul comes to faith, Paul does his mission work, Paul and Peter are martyred in the mid-60s, A.D. In 68 to 70-ish A.D., something significant happened down the street from Hal. The Jews were in rebellion against Rome, and the Romans came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They destroyed temple Judaism, and the Jews that were in rebellion fled or were killed. And there was a massive movement of 
Christians out of Jerusalem at the same time. Because many, many, many of the Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish believers. And so the Jewish believers move out. Church history teaches that's when the Apostle John fled Israel. And the Apostle John, church history says, went to Ephesus, which is where he lived out the rest of his days. Now, if we're looking then at these timing issues, we need to be aware of the idea that this is John, no longer in Israel writing, but this is John, or, or Jerusalem, this is John writing from Ephesus, according at least to church history. Scholars can fight back and forth. The letter itself is one that's written to a group of recipients, but it doesn't say who. Doesn't say a specific church. It's a circular letter. It's written for a lot of different churches and a lot of different people. There were some events that had happened culturally in the world itself that core, that, that are important to note in this is also. So let's, we, we gotta get some terms down. So excuse me if this is boring, okay? If it's boring, you can sleep for the next three minutes. We'll wake you up when it's done. And we'll pick back up. But for three minutes, you got to understand a couple of things. Okay. Three big philosophers, almost all people will remember the names of from Greece. Socrates, his student Plato, and his student Aristotle. So you got three generations of scholars. Plato is famous even today for his theory of forms. He told an allegory of a cave. Plato was responsible for the concept of trying to figure out reality. And for Plato, the concept of reality is the physical world we see is inferior to the intellectual or spiritual or unseen world. So, for example, I can tell you about the table that is holding my computer right here. And you can see that there's a table here. Good camera work, guys. Here's a table. Or I could go over here to the Bible and the Elmo and talk about the table that's holding the Bible. But these are different tables. How do you define a table? What makes this a table and this a table, but not... Uh, not this. This is not a table, but it's holding something. It's holding a microphone. It can rest on the ground. It's got a leg. But we know this is not a table. So Plato's playing with these ideas and Plato says, what do we do with this? There's an ideal of what a table is. That is superior to the physical forms we're calling tables. Make sense? Sort of? Kind of? A little bit? Okay. So, within the framework of this, there grows up within Greek thought this idea that there's something that's greater than just the physical. There's something that's greater that's, that's mental or spiritual. 
And 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 the physical is is a lesser, almost illusionary thing. It's it, it's what we see, but it's not the greater concept behind it, the greater truth. Now you get people who believe that, and you bring them into the Christian faith. And some people will come in and say, "God, illuminate my past and help me understand reality." But a lot of other people will take their past and try and superimpose that reality onto their new faith. And so you've got growing up within Christian circles, people who believe that the body is evil or inferior to the spirit. So, you know, we've got, we've got a body that, that, is prone to do all sorts of nasty little things. Our bodies uh, uh, can get us into all kinds of trouble. But our spirit is something, our minds are something that, that rise above those petty appetites of our physical nature. And so within that concept, as those people come in, they start doing something that Judaism never did. They start dividing the human being up. Where we're no longer one, we're compartmentalized. And there's parts of us that are holier than the other parts. And from there, the road can lead to some pretty... Dramatic conclusions. One is, ah, the body, tisk tisk, it's bad. So deny the body. If you want to be holy, be celibate and unmarried. If you want to be holy, don't eat and 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 starve yourself to death. If you want to be holy, don't you know, hit yourself with a whip to get your body under control. Then there's the other extreme. Hey, I got my spirit right with the Lord. This body's terribly corrupted. Might as well just let it cut loose. Hey, Jesus died to forgive me of my sins anyway. So he'll forgive the sins of the body. Let the body go do what the body will do. Bodies will be bodies. And all of that is a corruption of the Christian message. And some of these early Christians take the writings of Paul and others and they think they can glean from those writings, these ideas. And then there comes within the early church this concept of the super spiritual people. So there are some people who um, um, are just average run-of-the-mill Christians. But there are some who know the secrets to being extra spiritual. And if you're lucky and you show yourself worthy, they will initiate you into those secrets. Now, I've just given you about 40, actually about 400 years of history of thought all crammed in together. But these are real problems that the church is facing. And so by the time you get to the writing of this letter, there have been people within the church who have left the church. And, and oh, I haven't given you the whole thing. Let me give you another slide here. So 
Here are three different people I've put on this slide. The first one is Ignatius. I don't have time to talk about him. You can read about him in the lesson. The second one is Corinthus. I don't really have time. Well, we're going to have to talk about him for a moment. Corinthus is someone, I'm not sure that John was really written targeting, bless you, targeting him. But there are enough people who say there is, and he's a good example of what was being targeted, that it's worth looking at for a moment. Okay? Corinthus, bless you, Corinthus was a leader in the area of Ephesus, lived in Ephesus for a while, and he believed that the body is evil and that the greater things are the spiritual things. Now, I've got a question for you. If you believe that the body's evil, and you believe that the spiritual things are the good things, then how could Jesus Christ be Jesus Christ come in the flesh? So what Corinthus said, Corinthus said, if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll understand that Jesus was not God incarnate. Jesus was a man. But when Jesus was baptized, it says the Spirit of God descended on him as a dove. That's when Jesus became divine. The divine came to hang out in Jesus' body at that point. And the divine hung around until Jesus was headed to the cross. But the divine can't suffer like a body can. So when Jesus is headed to the cross... The divine God that entered him at his baptism left him, went over to another hill and just watched the events unfold. Jesus was not God in flesh in any sense of that orthodoxy we understand. So, Corinthus gives us one set. I put in your lesson actually uh, um, some comments also from a great, great, great Ignatius. Now, this is not Ignatius Loyola. This is the martyr Ignatius. This is a man. We've got his letters to churches. He was the bishop, the pastor of the church at Antioch, the church where they were first called Christians, remember? Antioch was a major Christian church location. And their chief bishop, their their chief pastor was Ignatius, and Ignatius was condemned for his faith and was sent to face the lions in Rome. Now, this is in the just right after 100 A.D., very, very early. So let's put it within 15 years, for example, of this letter, 1 John, being written. So... Ignatius is going to Rome, and on his journey to Rome, he writes letters to these various churches along the way. Just giving them bishop pastoral advice and helping them out. And we've got those letters still today. By the way, I consider it incredibly profound that anybody like this would give their life up or their faith. It would have been so easy for him to just say, eh, Jesus was a man. And not a God. And the God just came and dwelt in him for a while. But he would sooner give his life than he would abdicate the faith that there was a physical Jesus who was physical resurrected as God. Here's what he said. He said, 
I have observed, and this is to the church at Smyrna, I've observed your established and immovable faith, being fully persuaded as touching our Lord that he is in truth of the family of David according to the flesh. God's son, by the will and power of God, truly born of a virgin, baptized by John that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him. He was truly nailed to the tree in the flesh for our sakes under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. He suffered all these things for us that we might attain salvation. He truly suffered even as he truly raised himself. Not as um, unbelievers say that this was merely in semblance. It wasn't like... um, just a, an illusion. That's the way other people... Corinthus thought that there was a physical Jesus, that the divine came and got on him and then left. Other people thought that Jesus was just an apparition. They, they, in fact, there's some early writings that indicate from these people that when Jesus walked on the seashore, you probably couldn't see feet prints because he was an illusion. And, he, and, and, and so we've got... no. Not as some unbelievers say, not even him, not his passion. The idea that his death and resurrection was in semblance and an apparition? People who believe that, they're an apparition. I know and believe he was in the flesh, even after the resurrection. If some affirm who are without God, that is, unbelievers, that his suffering was only a semblance. It was only, it looked like he suffered. Why am I a prisoner? Why do I even long to go fight with the beasts? If Jesus is not really God, if he wasn't really physically resurrected, then I'm dying in vain. Not only that, I'm lying to you. I'm a liar. That's pretty profound evidence to me that something's going on. So within to that framework and within that time period comes this letter. And if we open the letter and we pull it out and we look at it, the text of the letter is a beautiful thing. Now, the Greek's not artistic Greek. Uh, it's not gorgeous Greek. But it's, it's, it's fun to read Greek for me. I enjoy looking at it in the Greek. I'm not going to make you look at it in the Greek. But we are going to talk about it a little bit. And so I've thrown some Greek text up there. I want us to look at first this idea of the state of affairs concerning Jesus. Jesus is eyewitness testimony. Did you ever watch My Cousin Vinny or is Dale Hearn the only one who watches it? Remember when the, the prosecutor goes, identical. He also says, are you an eyewitness? Eyewitness. This is an eyewitness account. This is an eyewitness. Look at it in the English first. Then we may go back and look at it in the Greek for a moment. That which was from the beginning. And the Greek uh, word ho there can mean that. Uh, It can also mean he uh, um, who was from the beginning. Uh, We we don't know by context uh, if it's a that or a he. 
until you get a little bit further down. But I have zero qualms also translating that he. He who was from the beginning. Thank you, Richard. Which we have heard. Now, Greek, and and many of y'all were in here when we taught life group Greek. If you remember, we talked about verbal aspects. Some people call them tenses. I don't want to get into great detail, but I will tell you this. This is in a tense that basically says this is the state of affairs that I've experienced. This is, I have experienced this in the verb tense of the, the, the Greek. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. It's something we heard. It wasn't an apparition. It wasn't an imagination. And it's something, again, same tense, perfect tense, that we've seen with our eyes. We looked on it. We touched it with our hands. Jesus was real. I'm not telling you. He says, I'm not writing you rumors. I'm not writing you what I was told. I am writing to you about something I saw with my own eyeballs. Something I heard with my own ears. Something I touched with my own hand concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest. That life was shown. The Greek word is is shown. It became visible. That life was shown, became manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So if we go back to the PowerPoint. The state of affairs concerning Jesus is one that's based on eyewitness testimony. This is not the letter of some guy who's trying to put together a theological homework assignment. This is not a history report. This is an actual eyewitness account from someone who was intimate with Jesus. I want to show you the next set of text. And I want to talk to you about the state of koinonia. This is 1 John 1, 3. So if we continue in the text. That which we've seen, that which we've heard. See how he's just saying it over and over and over? One of the questions Ann Young asked me when she memorized 1 John last year is she said to me, Mark, um, you know, he keeps using these words over and over. And he'll say the same thing over and over. But sometimes he'll say it and the verbs will be just a little bit different, a little bit different tense. Why? And, and the reason why is because 
what John is doing here is he's switching back and forth in the Greek between a couple of different verb tenses. In the Greek, there's a verb tense called the aorist tense. And it's basically your default tense. It's your go-to tense. It's what you use almost all the time. It can be talking about the past. It can be talking about the present. It can be talking about the future. It's your storytelling tense. It's your go-to tense. You're having a conversation. You use the aorist tense. Okay? But there are times where you want to emphasize your personal involvement in a story. And then you shift tenses. And you can shift to the perfect tense, for an example, which is what John does here. So John's going back and forth. He's telling this like, hey, this is the narrative. This is the story. But then he's also saying, but we were there. I experienced that. I did it. It was me. So it's not just, here's the story, it's me, I was there. Now, we get lost in that in the English, and so it just makes it hard to memorize. But that's some of the reason why. But look what he says. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. I want us to talk about that word fellowship here in a sec. Fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus, the Messiah. Fellowship. Koinonio. Koinonia is the word for fellowship. Koinonia is a common Greek word, and it refers to a, a, a group that meets for a common purpose, that relates on a common basis. So it can mean in its root form a commonness or a sharing, but it really became to be used of a group. They would, the Greeks would use it at the time for uh, a, a club. The Greeks would use it at the time for a, a, a meeting of, of government officials. But it's a commonness that draws together a group and it's a recognition of that group in relationship to each other. Now, if we go back to the text for a moment, within the framework of that, here's what we have. What we've seen about Jesus, what we've heard about Jesus, we're proclaiming to you so that you may meet with us in common and we'll be in a common group together about Jesus. We'll be in church together. We'll be in fellowship together. And when you're in fellowship with us, the writer says, you need to know our fellowships with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, when you and I gather together and we're in fellowship together here, what we share in common, what the readers shared in common with John is God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. And so we gather together as a common group with our sharing and our commonality being who Jesus is and who God is. That's why who Jesus is is pretty important. And the reality of Jesus and that this isn't just some fiction and this isn't just some made up thing is extremely important. 
We're not naive fools. We're not just gathering together as a, as a club. We're about something here that is much greater than any of us individually. We are about the mission and work of the God who's responsible for all reality. And he is at work. And became a human being in Jesus Christ. That eyewitnesses have given their lives out of a devoted belief and understanding that this was happening. So, the state of Koinonia, this is a real relationship we're in. If you know Jesus, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I may like you just because you're fine people. But now I'm related to you. And I love you in a different way. And there's a bond there. An absolute bond. Now, the writer goes on to talk about a real description of life. And a real life description of sin. And this is 1 John 1, 5 through 10. So we'll go back to the text and finish 1 John 1 by looking at these passages. This is the message that we've heard. This is the message we proclaim to you. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Now that, that, that means he's perfect light. He is absolute light. No darkness. You can't say, well, God's got his shady areas. No. In him is no darkness. Zero. Zip. Nada. Now, problem. You want to be in God? You can't have any darkness. Because in God is no darkness. So there's a problem here. We got to get rid of our darkness. How do we get rid of our darkness? I don't think we can on our own. Look what he says. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and and yet we're darkness, walking in darkness. We lie. What commonness. What koinonia, what common purpose is there going to be with God who is perfect light in him is no darkness if we're bringing shadows into the light? And if we're walking in the shadow lands and saying we're walking in in God. We lie, we don't practice the truth. But if we're walking in the light as he is in the light, then we do have fellowship with one another. But how are we going to do that? Well, even and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. The darkness is gone. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. And John doesn't want you to say you're perfect. But I am saying that the me that Jesus has redeemed is light. And he's pulling me out of the darkness. And the part of me that walks in darkness is not the part that will inherit my eternal life. That's the part that's the old man, Larry Burgess, that, that, that we're dead to, as, to use Paul's language. 
If we say we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. He forgives them. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. But in the fact that we do sin, as we confess it, he forgives it. Now, if we go back then, a real life description of sin is this. This is a reality. There is sin. We do sin. But we have forgiveness in Jesus. That is the basis of our fellowship with God the Father. We'll never fellowship with God the Father on our own merit because what fellowship does light have with darkness? But through the light, we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus from all of our sin. And so all of the darkness has been forgiven. And now we can properly fellowship with God in the light. And if we understand these roads, then we get there. The roads we travel make a difference. If Jesus didn't really die for my sins, I'm on a dead end street. If Jesus wasn't really God where his death counts for anything, I'm on a dead end street. If Jesus was an apparition, if Jesus was a fairy tale, I'm on a dead end street. If my sins have not been forgiven, I'm on a dead end street. But my journey goes somewhere through the grace of Jesus. So the points for home. I grab out of the fifth chapter. These are the we know statements. We know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know this. We are from God. Why? We're, we, we can't get light if we're not from God. You will never get light on your own. You will walk in darkness. You show me any human being, any human being that's perfect. The only way they're going to get there, as Hal said, is by redefining sin. And making sin where, okay, well, you can't murder and you can't uh, steal and you can't commit adultery. All right, if you define sin as that, then yeah, we've got a bunch of perfect people. But you keep the real definition of sin as light. And there's not one of us that doesn't have dark thoughts as well as dark deeds. But we know something. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God. He's eternal life. And so in Jesus now, we've got the answers. We've got the truth. We've got the light. We've got the commonness. We've got the fellowship. Only works if Jesus is real. Only works if there's a real death and a physical resurrection of Jesus. Without it, your Christianity isn't Christianity. It's fake. Last we know. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. Doesn't mean we don't sin. Keep on sinning in the verb tense there means that's not the state of affairs where we want to live. That's not what we're choosing to do. Oh, we trip up, we make mistakes, but that's not the life for us. So as we start looking at 1 John, I want to thrill you with this idea 
we're going to have a chance to look at a book that takes an age of Christianity that's a little bit, maybe three decades later than what we're reading in Romans. And so we've got later New Testament Christianity, and it gives us a chance to look at it, and I really believe it puts a different spin on what we generally put and understand for our faith. We tend to think as Southern Baptist congregation in in line with Romans and Ephesians and Galatians. This is a different way of saying the same gospel message. And so I think you'll enjoy this study. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being real. Thank you that Jesus Christ was real. Lord Jesus, for coming in the flesh, for providing eyewitnesses, and for helping us understand the state of affairs. May we embrace readily the reality of this world as you have explained it to us. Through Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen.